Acts chapter 15. Defining moments. I want to talk about a defining moment in the life of the Christian church, in the life of the gospel message. In the life of the gospel message. A defining moment. Let's take a second over here. Actually, let's turn to Acts. Let's read. I'm only going to preach out of the first five verses today. But I'm going to read the whole chapter, 31 verses, so uh, bear with me. Acts 15. Excuse me. (coughs) Starting in verse 1. But when some men came down from Judea, and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised... According to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to be circumcised them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, You know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we are saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus, just as they were. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this word, and with these words that the prophets agree, Just as it was written, after this I will will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins. I will restore it. And that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name say, the Lord who makes these things known from old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those Gentiles who turn to God, but we should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. And from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. 
since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions. It has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men, and to send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who are themselves, will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they went off in peace, both by the brothers of those who had sent them. And Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others. Let's pray. Father, we recognize an important aspect in this chapter, Lord, that if it didn't come out properly, Lord, we might not be here today. We might be under the yoke of Moses, under the yoke of circumcision, trying to please you through works, God, with no abiding help of the Holy Spirit. We'd be left to our own devices trying to be saved, muddling about in this world, Father God, in this moral wilderness with no hope of ever, ever being strengthened on the inside. God, we thank you here in the 21st century for what took place here 2,000 years ago with Paul and Barnabas, how they went toe to toe with these certain men of the Pharisees who tried to put a yoke on people, Father. And there's people today, Lord, trying to put yoke on your sheep. Father God, let this church, let Sonship Ministries hear the ringing sound of freedom that's in this text tonight, God. In Jesus' precious name. Amen. You know, a lot of reading, and if you're not familiar with the history and the background and everything, you would mind, well, this is a nice little chapter, it's interesting, I can read a couple of things, but what does this have to do with me and you in the 21st century? Uh, I'm just trying to be a good Christian man, a good Christian wife, a good Christian husband, so on and so forth. And really, what does this offer me? How relative is this to me today to really live out the Christian life? Is it necessary? I'm here to tell you, it's more than necessary. It's, not, it's more than a requirement. It is the gospel at stake over here. This is a defining, defining moment. And I will try to do the best I can as I preach out of the first five verses to show you the serious of the matter that's taking place in this, in this text tonight. Defining moments are a hidden reality in many people's lives. I think of sports figures, entrepreneurs, military generals, politicians, and even ordinary people like ourselves. We all have defining moments. There are moments in our life that... They make who we are. They give us a certain character and a certain fortitude in life. They're hard times. My first thought from sports was a man named Cassius Clay. A lot of you people might not realize who Muhammad Ali was. 
And as a young upstart, as a, an Olympic gold medalist with a big mouth, he had to go against the heavyweight champion Sonny Liston, and he took him out easily. That was a defining moment for that man. And the truth of the matter is, he became the greatest. He really was. I think of Neil Armstrong's walk on the moon. There was one small step for man. There was one giant step for mankind. That's a defining moment for NASA. I think of Washington crossing the Delaware on the night of December 25th, 1776. That was a defining moment in the revolutionary war against England that bring a great victory for the troops. We had a couple of thousand, I think it was 3,000, going up against 30,000, and we won because we crossed the Delaware in the middle of the night in the freezing cold against all odds. He moved the whole army. It was incredible. I think of Abraham offering up his son, and then God said, now I know you love me. That's a defining moment. We have defining moments in our life when God says to our soul, now I know you love me. I think of Moses at the burning bush was a defining moment. I think of him standing before Pharaoh, the greatest man on earth at the time. And he went toe-to-toe with Pharaoh. He went toe-to-toe with Pharaoh's magicians. It was a defining moment in that man's life and ministry. I think of Joshua crossing the Jericho and taking the Jordan, taking down Jericho. I think of David going up against Goliath. These are defining moments in their lives. I think of Elijah calling down fire against the prophets of Baal. I think of John the Baptist staring down Herod the Great and calling him an adulterer for sleeping with his sister-in-law. No one would think of doing that. And he pointed right at him and said... You're sinning. And he lost his head for it. I think of Jesus going toe-to-toe with the religious leaders of his day. I think of Jesus at the final moment when he went into the wilderness to fast for 40 days. And there he was tempted by Satan. And with no food and no sleep and no water, he went toe-to-toe with someone who never lost the battle. Satan never lost one battle against one human being. And he came against his match, against the weak savior, against the Jewish carpenter who was hungry, who was sleepless. But with five verses of scripture was a defining moment. And the Bible says he came out of the wilderness in the power of the spirit was the defining moment I think about him in the garden praying for his people I think about him laying dead in the tomb only to have a resurrection I think of Martin Luther in 1517 when he penned that document attacking the Catholic Church's corrupt practices of selling indulgences to absolve sin is 95 theses which have propounded two central gospel beliefs that the Bible is the central religious authority and that humans may reach salvation only by their faith and not by their deeds it sparked the Protestant Reformation and is why you and I are here today it was a defining moment for the gospel The gospel was hitting for a thousand years almost from the people. They weren't allowed to have a Bible. The mass was in Latin, though it wouldn't have done them any good anyway. Because there was no gospel message in it. It was a defining moment. 
I think of Martin Luther King's famous, I have a dream. How he moved the masses of humanity from different people, from every conceivable background to march for the civil rights of others and win. The list goes on and on throughout human history. Humans have done incredible and heroic deeds for a just cause. Defining moments. Many more have done it on smaller scales but never will reach the light of day because of obscurity. Teachers, five firefighters, cops, soldiers, coaches, teachers, doctors, first responders, defining moments in people's lives. You and I today have our share of defining moments if you look at your life. Things we've overcome. Choices we have made that said, no, it's God or nothing else. I won't bow a knee to an unbeliever. Most of the defining moments are for the better. Some defining moments aren't. Some are for the worst. They shape our character and fortitude, fighting personal battles that are hidden from the rest of humanity. They're in our heart, fighting sin, fighting temptation. Those are defining moments. It's happening right now. There's people right here. You're at a defining moment, time in your life. When God's calling you to step up higher. That's what's going on in our story tonight. That's exactly what's taking place. It's a defining moment. And this is what's being defined. Is it Christ alone? Or is it Christ and something else? You would think, well, that's a non-brainer. That's a no-brainer. It's Christ alone. Do you know how many people don't know that today? How many people are going to hear a sermon today that it's not Christ alone? By the time the sermon's over, the pastor or the minister or the priest will point to other things to try to please God. Be better attendance, give more money, do this, do that. They'll give you a list of things to do in order to get God's favor. That is tonight. That's at stake. Nothing less than the salvations of souls is at stake in our text tonight. Nothing less than the honor of Christ suffering and dying on the cross is at stake tonight. This is a Trojan horse. This circumcision. This law of Moses. Just to to come in and put yoke on people and say, no, do it our way. We don't want you to have freedom. Who's going to keep an eye on you on Friday nights? Who's going to keep an eye on you after church on Sunday, what you're doing? If you don't have laws and rules and regulations, if Moses and his law is not watching over you, you might go into hedonism and think you're going to heaven. They know nothing of the work of the Holy Spirit. Because when you don't understand the work of Christ on the cross, do not expect them to understand the power of the personal work of the Holy Spirit on our heart. I don't have to follow the congregation around. Jesus does it. They're his sheep. The Holy Spirit will speak to the true true believer's conscience.
What's at stake? Is it Christ? Is it something else? Is it Christ in the Lord? Is it Christ in circumcision? Is it Christ in don't eat meat on Friday? Is it Christ in, in keeping the Sabbath holy? Is it Christ in something else? What is it? Does the work of Christ on the cross need to be supplemented with something sinners can do? Think about it. Is he inefficient in his work? Did he not cry out, it is finished? Man, can man man add anything to salvation? We can certainly ruin it, but we can't add to it. Maybe it needs to be supplemented. Maybe there was a character flaw, a recall. A recall on the cross. Oh, you Bible-believing Christians, there's a recall. All of a sudden you get an email. A mistake has been made. Jesus is not God. You need to be circumcised. And also behind this, salvation in Christ alone, is the changed heart that leads to a changed, joyful Christian life with all the benefits of the Holy Spirit on their souls. Listen, we meet several hours a week, maybe four or five hours a week, maybe a little fellowship on the outside, but the rest of the week, you are alone. But you're not alone. And the Holy Spirit, he doesn't sleep on the job. I don't know if you know that. He's not a union worker. Come on. 15, I still got a union card. But this is serious stuff. Behind the scenes are here, and you don't hear it, you don't receive it, but let me tell you, he, they're talking, they're coming face to face, this is the defining moment of the gospel, this is about the freedom from sin's power in our lives, and the misery that flows from it. This is freedom from shame, from guilt, from a heavy conscience, from fear of standing before God. This is freedom from going back into the world again. The Holy Spirit power in our life is totally reliant. Let me ask you something. Would you like nothing less in your life than to live for the Lord every moment, every day, every the rest of your life on earth? Would you want that? Well, you can have that, but let me tell you right now, it only comes one way, and that is it. The Holy Spirit's power in our life is totally reliant on Christ alone dependence by the sinner. I can't be praying to Mary and trusting in Christ for my salvation. I can't be playing the rosary. I can't be going to confession. I can't be worrying about the mass. I can't be worrying about holy water. I can't be worrying about sacraments. I need Christ alone. Period. Any hope in themselves will only hinder the Spirit's work in us. Listen to Paul and Galatians. Listen, please take a moment. I'm very excited if you can't tell. This week, read the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians was written because of the 15th chapter of Acts. They go together. Especially the first chapter, the second chapter, and the fifth chapter. 
So you can just read chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 5, and chapter 6. But 1, 2, and 5 is, is where it's at. As a matter of fact, let's put it in Galatians chapter 3. This is all going on at the same time. Paul says this. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing in faith? Are you so foolish having begun the Spirit? Are you now being perfected in the flesh? You're going to change your life now by being more religious? If I gave you Ten Commandments, is it going to change your life? Is it going to make you a better Christian? Do's and don'ts? Or does making... I... Or does hearing the precious words, I forgive you, go sin no more, going to change your life? That's what I need to hear every day. Brian, I forgive you. Go sin no more. That's what you needed to hear today. That's what you're going to need to hear tomorrow. And if you live 50 more years, you're going to need to hear it every day. You're going to need to be reminded. You're forgiven. Go sin no more. Let's go to what text? I'm going to read the first five verses, make some comments, and then some applications. So with everything I said in mind, listen to these first five verses afresh. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others who were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them. Can I paraphrase? Are you ready? Can you handle it? But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it's not good enough to be in Christ alone, as Paul says. That's not good enough. It's also necessary to circumcise them and order them to keep the law of Moses. What Peter said later on was basically, the law of Moses did us no good. It set us free from nothing. Why would I ask anybody to keep the law of Moses? Historically, while Paul was away from the church, preaching the gospel on his missionary trip, chapter 13 and 14, certain men from Jerusalem, the mother church, came down unofficially. They took this upon themselves. Most self-righteous people take things upon themselves. You know why? They're the moral barometer. They're the vanguard of all truth. They don't need anybody but themselves. They don't answer to nobody. They don't obey anybody. 
So they take it upon themselves while the cat is out. Paul is preaching. The leaders aren't there. They sneak in. Unofficially, but they said, Jerusalem church sent us. Telling them that the big boys sent us down from Jerusalem to set the record straight. We're going to give you the true gospel. We're going to tell you what Paul was holding out on. He was holding out on telling you about the element of circumcision because he was afraid of you. He was afraid that you wouldn't listen to him anymore once you started speaking about circumcision. But you can't be saved without circumcision. And he unsettled their minds. Because the leaders of the church weren't there. So now we will tell you what Paul was afraid to tell you. Read that in Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 to 8. And so they preached Moses and circumcision, but not Christ to them. When Paul and Barnabas got back, they went toe-to-toe. And tried to persuade them, as Paul would always do, in a charitable way. That their position was wrong on this matter. But they were blinded by selfish religious ambitions and could not hear Paul's great insights into the position of the law in the new covenant. They didn't study to show themselves approved, rightly dividing the word of truth. Just a fast application. This really goes to show you how serious the situation is. They're not listening to Paul. Paul just poured his heart out on the great things God just did. And they didn't hear one word. That's what the self-righteous do. They see nothing good. All they see is what they want to see. It's a life and death fight to the end. Listen to what's going on here, please. Satan could not stop the Christ and atoning work. When he sent them to the cross and he killed him, he thought it was over, only to see Christ rise up again. So now he's going to go inside. The enemy on the inside is always more deadly than the enemy on the outside. And since I have no hold on Christ anymore, I'll pollute the gospel. I'll add circumcision. I'll add dietary food laws. I'll add Sabbath keeping. I'll add new moons and festivals. I'll I'll, I'll add to it and I'll water it down so much that guess what? It'll do you no good. It won't save you if it can't sanctify you. If it doesn't have the power to change the life, it doesn't have the power to save the soul. That's what Satan would do. So off they went. They all went. Let's bring it to the mother church. Let's go back to Jerusalem. And on their way, as was Paul's custom... He'd stop in various places. you got to remember something. This wasn't like, uh, uh, pick me up at Antioch and uh, drive me over to Jerusalem. They walked. It was probably a several week walk. And there they did. They walked. And on the way, they stopped in these local churches that were founded. This is probably about, we're talking about 17, 18 years after 
the ascension of Christ. So the church has been around, and churches have been small churches all over the place, and Paul's going in, he's telling them all what he did on the first missionary trip, and how God opened up the hearts to the Gentiles, and had the miracles, and they were all rejoicing, because that's what genuine Christians do. We rejoice, not just in our own salvation, but we rejoice in other people's salvations, and we're very happy to hear that. Guess why? Because when you are born again, you don't care about anything else. You're not indifferent to someone else's salvation. You're all in. Nothing means I'd rather die than live without the gospel. There's no life for me if I'm not talking in fellowship with other Christians. That's an empty existence. That's secularism, humanism, materialism, hopelessness. There's nothing in that life. I need to give me one or two good believers. The rest of my life is all I need. Than a thousand unsaved friends. Period. That's it. And he's going from church to church, and they're all rejoicing. And those those scoundrel brethren were following Paul and, and listening to him. And they didn't care that people were, they had these religious affections were on fire. And they were excited for God. They didn't care. They got the Lord. They got the Lord. They got Keep the law loose. They're turning from their pagan ways. They're turning from their sins. They're turning from their hedonism. They're turning from their, from their, their multiple gods. They're living for, they love the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But they can't see that. The self-righteous always have blinders. That's it. The world gets smaller and smaller and smaller. They cannot see the joy of the Holy Ghost. They cannot see the freedom that Christ brings. Because that's what true conversion to Jesus really does. When it's based on faith alone, it brings a sense of happiness and joy in other people's lives. Whether it's their own personal salvation or hearing about other people's salvation, God gets all the glory. When I hear about God doing work in Cameroon and Dr. John tells the church or calls me and John up and says, guess what happened? I don't say, oh God, oh John, John, John. I say, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. I don't worship the servant. I worship his master. My master. I was in the back Preparing my heart and my mind to preach. Young man came in, Brother Luke, he's here. He grew up in the faith. You don't mind me sharing a little bit, Luke. And I just said, how you doing? I was working with the servant. He showed me. In two minutes, he told me I grew up in the faith. I wasn't saved. I ran. I went wild. And two years ago, God called me back. And And the joy, and I was rejoicing. I was like, that's the gospel. Circumcision wouldn't have made him a happy young man. Keeping the law of Moses is, 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 it doesn't work. Just finding salvation full and free in the atoning death and resurrection of Christ is all the Holy Spirit needs. The unsaved don't know that. And even some Christians, we're going to find out that these men will believe is who were part of the Pharisees. I'll talk about that in the weeks to come. I'll be in this chapter for quite a while. When they get to Jerusalem, they were welcomed. 
by the apostles and the elders and the brothers in Christ with all the warmth of genuine Christian charity. I don't want you to miss this. This was a groundbreaking moment. Now for the first time ever in Jerusalem, both Jew and Gentile were worshiping God together in the city of David. Never, ever. It was prophesied by just about every prophet in the Old Testament. On the day of Pentecost, there were all Jews who got saved. This is the first recorded time ever where converted Gentiles and Jews were in the same room worshiping God. Probably some time passed before the discussions got on the way. Fellowship is always an important part. Christians like to eat. Did you know that? (laughs) We do a lot around food. We do. And I'm sure there was food and there was fellowship. Before the real discussions got on the way, before the debates got on the way. Everyone got acquainted with one another. You can rest assured. Paul and Barnabas at the same time were given detailed accounts of what God did and what only God could do on the mission field of Gentiles, pagans. And how he did it, how they turned to God. As 1 Thessalonians says, they turned from dead idols to the living God. They were obeying God. They were loving God. They were following God. They were enjoying God. Never being circumcised. Never hearing the name of Moses. All by the word of Jesus Christ and him alone. And now the the full fruit of the spirit was in full bloom. This is what Paul was saying. Paul was telling the apostles up in, and the leaders up in Jerusalem of everything that was going on in the mission field, that they weren't getting this on the news. They had to hear it firsthand. And here's Paul describing in detail all the conversions and all the great things. And it was an awe-inspiring moment. Joy and praise and repentance and love were all being expressed by these new converts. Listen, I'm a pastor, I'm not a pastor, but I know when something's going on in a man's heart. I know when God's doing something in a woman's heart. I can tell when I hear genuine repentance. I can sit there and I see the tears coming down and a man or a woman said, I need to change my wicked ways. That's the, that's the work of Christ in their heart. Well, Moses could never do that. Moses never got a man to say, I need to change my ways. And Paul is sharing all this wonderful work of God. The room was electric with the awe of what God was doing. I've sat in congregations when I hear testimonies of what God has done. And I don't think about anything. Nothing. I don't care what time it is. I don't care how hungry I am. I don't care about anything. I'm in awe. Of the testimony. Have you ever had that experience? Yeah. That's what's taking place. And seemingly out of nowhere. A room filled with testimonies. Where Paul was being expressed with all this. 
great joy, these brothers who belong to the way come out of nowhere. See what happened when you read the book of Acts, like most history, most prose in the Bible, and you're reading it historically. The timeline's not always right. This, this, this took place over days. This is not an hour. And what happened, Paul's testimony of God's work was so convincing and so joyful. These brothers who belonged to the Pharisees, they didn't like it. And they were going to come and listen to the arrogance of these self-righteous people. The disdain for Paul, the disdain for the work of the Holy Spirit. They're going to come in and they're going to say, no. It's necessary to circumcise them and order them to keep the law of Moses. There's always a party pooper. Isn't there? There's always one to come in, everything's going well, and someone wants to ruin it. That's what they just did. They just came in through cold water on this praise of God. They were stealing the joy of God. They were stealing the praise of God. That's why a couple of verses later, Peter says, do not test God who knows the heart. These Pharisees, they were testing God. They were putting God to the test. God says, I accept them on nothing alone but Christ. Their hearts are filled with the Spirit. Their hearts are filled with joy. They're starting to live an obedient life. And now you're telling them that's not good enough. You're coming against me, not them. I can't wait. That goes on all the time. The thought that a pastor, a minister, a man, a woman, an organization would get in front of the work of the Holy Spirit. When they stand before Christ on that day, he will take them apart inch by inch. They were bent on circumcision first. They were bent on this law second. Then somewhere at the end, they gave into Jesus' suffering for them as the final Lamb of God. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you have to have faith in Jesus. Circumcision. Obedience to the law. Oh, yeah, you have to believe in Jesus. That happens all the time. You go to a sermon... You're on vacation, you listen to somebody, and you hardly hear about Jesus' atoning work. They put other things in the way. A new move of God, a new move of the Holy Spirit, a new vision, a new dream, a new prophecy. A new vision. More this, more that, more money, more giving, more something. And at the end, a little bit of Jesus. To spice it up. I will speak much more on this subject. Please read Galatians chapter 1. Read the whole book of Galatians. But if you have to, just read chapters 1 and 2 and 5. But let me get into some applications before we close. The gospel of free grace through faith in Jesus is a threat to human pride. Don't forget it. That's why people fight us all the time. 
It's a threat to human pride. It says you can do nothing, you're lost, you're dying, you're dead, and you're going to go to hell unless you come to Christ freely. The implications are clear. You bring nothing to God but filthy, rotten sin. Period. And you've got no hope. God's not concerned about your religious resume. He's not concerned about how many times you go to church. He's not how much, how much money you give. He don't care. That is a threat to human pride. It was a threat to these Pharisees. Who put Jesus at the end of the totem pole. And put circumcision and, uh, and the law of Moses ahead of him. We all need defining moments in our spiritual life. Everyone in this room. I'm going to share one, not from my own life, but from the founding father of this church. He's not here, Brother Carl Patain. He's down in Georgia. He retired. He's down there with his family. But 20-something years ago, when we first started our men's meeting, it was me, Carl, and Brother Patty. And soon after that, Brother Bruce and a couple others. But Brother Carl told me every Monday at 4 o'clock was our Bible study. Every other Monday at that time. And May came around or late April and all of a sudden it was a Monday afternoon. It was like 75 degrees and he was uh, an avid uh, paddleball player. He was quite good. And it was like a quarter to four and he wanted to play more paddleball. And he, got, he said, he goes, Brian, I've never felt any kind of temptation like this. He goes, I wanted this to play. I didn't want to come to the Bible study. But he goes, I just had to make the right choice. It changed his entire walk. He got filled with the Spirit of God at that time. He says, when I came, I, something happened to me on the inside. He goes, I, I've never felt the same again. He never battled that thought again. He was never not there on Monday. He was never not here on Sundays he, until he retired and moved. And he's still walking strong with the Lord today. He loves the Lord. That was a defining moment. In, I'm telling you, everybody, I'll look you right in the eye. Everyone here, even myself, everyone. God's going to call you on the, on the rug. Come and give you an, an opportunity for a defining moment in your Christian life. He's going to say, is it me or is it that you're always following? Or this, or another excuse not to go to church, or another not to go to a Bible study, or not to be a generous, or not to be given defining moments. Adding anything to Jesus alone, no matter how good it looks, application three, only sends men to hell. Get it right now. Please understand. And here's what happens in Catholicism. What happens in Catholicism is that we don't know the human heart. So someone could generally be saved, but you never know it. They don't even know it. They live in fear all their life. Because there's so many other obstacles and stumbling blocks they're trying to get through. They've added so much to the cross, they don't even know it. They don't even know they're sinners going to hell unless you're born again. Listen, you can get saved and go to hell in the Protestant church or the Catholic church. You need to be born again. 
And unless you are being told you need to be saved, you'll never be born again. If you are told you are saved at baptism, you'll never be born again. It's a serious offense to the cross. Number four. I'll I'll close with this. It's a serious thing. The law of Moses has to be put in its right place. There are many churches today, and I'll bring out most Pentecostal churches, Pentecostal backgrounds, have some kind of affinity with the Old Testament law. They love to talk about tithing. They love to talk about Israel. They love to talk about setting up a new temple in Israel and, and all these kind of Old Testament prophet, uh, prophet prophecies. And what happens is that they don't understand the law. Now take a moment here. Jerusalem church has been around for close to 20 years. Peter was a leader in the Jerusalem church. James, the half-brother of Jesus Christ, he's the leader in the Jerusalem church. But neither one of them can get their hands fully around the law. They knew that salvation only comes through faith in Christ. But they entertain law keepers all the time. And I'll talk about that as you read chapter 15, keep on going. It was the Apostle Paul, God raised up the Apostle Paul to put the law in its proper context. It's called biblical theology, once and for all. Romans 15 says that the law is over. Christ is the fulfillment of every law. I cannot stand here and tell you from an Old Testament text that you have to tithe your money. You have to give 10%. If you make a thousand, you have to give a hundred. I've gone to a church, they handed you a pamphlet, and it gave you the percentages of what you give according to how much you make. If you came into a bracket of 50 to 75,000, this is how much they expected. If you were in a bracket from 250 to 500, they gave it to them. And the worst thing about it, the first day they did that, I was there, I'd bring a friend. And that's the sermon you heard. Praise God that friend's here today and he knows the gospel. (laughs) Because Moses said you must tithe. No. Tithing has nothing to do with you and God anymore. Give generous. I tithe. I tithe from day one. I love it. Would never change it. I would encourage you to tithe. Go for it. But after that, I can't say a thing. God loves a joyful giver. Amen? It's up to you. But to try to make a war out of it, they're fighting. But that's what takes place. When you don't understand the Old Testament, when you don't understand how perfect the atoning work of Christ was on our behalf, you will get caught up in schisms and divisions and cult-like personality religions. and You'll get caught up in this stuff because they're going to take the law. And that's what these brothers did. They went down when Paul wasn't there and they said, but the, the, but the Bible says, and they're young believers. And oh. They came from Jerusalem. They're telling me I need to be circumcised. So they... 
tell you something. In this church, the law has its place. And it's behind Christ. It doesn't come anywhere near Christ. You preach the law for one reason. To point people to Christ. The law is like a syringe. How many people like to see the doctor coming at you with the syringe? You know, you're like this, and you lay down, you're strapped in, you know, and there's like three people looking like to see the pain you're going to go through, you know. The hygienist is there, and, you know, they want to see you squirming. And the law is a hypodermic needle that brings the grace of God. After it's done that and you're saved, you never need to see the law again. Because the Holy Spirit will now change you from the inside out. Father, we love you. We praise you. Help us with defining moments in our life, Father God. Help us to draw close to you as you draw close to us, Father God. Let us rejoice that it's all done. Let our conscience never be heavy as we struggle with the sins of our flesh or the temptations of this world. That you're always ready to save, forgive, and to help in times of trouble. That the throne of grace, you call upon us to boldly come and storm the the throne of grace in time of need, Lord. I don't have to go read the testament of Moses. I just come to the throne of grace by faith. For that is where our Savior lies. In Jesus' name.